Hey everybody, welcome to Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. This week we're talking about the Koch brothers on a special two-part investigation. In part one, we talk about their origin stories, as well as how Fred Koch struck some lucrative deals with two gentlemen named Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler. We also talk about Charles and David Koch's early flirtations with the radical libertarian movement and their funding of various schools that promote Southern secession. All that and more coming up on Grubstakers. I think we disproportionately stop whites too much. I taught those kids lessons on product development and marketing, and they taught me what it was like growing up feeling targeted for your race. I am proud to be gay. I am proud to be a Republican. You know, I went to a tough school in Queens and they used to beat up the little Jewish boys. You know, I love having the support of real billionaires. Um... All right, you can stop that, Andy. I got to do the intro now. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a very special episode of Grub Stakers. Sean P. McCarthy here, as always, with the friends. Andy Palmer. Steve Jeffries. Yogi Polywalt. And uh, this is a special episode about the Koch brothers. Uh, you might have heard of them. And, uh, you know, if you're a critical listener to our podcast, you might think that this is just, you know, four open micers doing Wikipedia research. And to that I say, first of all, Andy has not been to an open mic in months. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, Second mm-hmm. of all, today it's a special episode because I read a book. Yes, that's I read right. 460 pages of Dark Money by Jane Mayer. Wow. Yeah. And so I know a lot about the Koch brothers. So today, it's not going to be two hours of frantic Googling uh, and then plagiarizing other people's work and adding bad jokes to it. It will be one book that we're plagiarizing and adding bad jokes and audio drops to. And it's extra impressive because Sean is functionally illiterate. (laughs) He's the R. Kelly of our group in more ways than one. (laughs) Um, But so, yeah. We're not allowed to talk about him anymore. (laughs) Sean? (laughs) <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I was going to say, we don't have time to do research because I have spent all of my life trying to find uh, Kurt Cobain's accusations of statutory rape to get him pulled off Spotify to annoy <laughs> Andy. Um, but so basically, uh, we should mention, because we're going to be doing this special two-part episode on the Koch brothers, this is part one of two. And uh, because it is the Koch brothers, you know, they are... We might have some more liberals listening, and we would just like to welcome you if you're a new listener, and this is a podcast about how the Koch brothers are the only bad billionaires. All of the other ones are good. They're pretty great, uh, actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the Koch brothers have, have become kind of a, a fixture, you know, since Harry Reid talked about them on the Senate floor, and Obama has spoken about them, uh, and for good reason. But they have become kind of a fixture of uh, the liberal hatred of billionaires, and uh, they're a very fascinating group. Um, and I, I think like one of the, the best ways to start this is just to talk about the 2016 election. Um, Cl- Hillary Clinton and affiliated PACs spent about $1.4 billion in 2016. Trump and his PAC spent about $950 million. Uh, the Koch Brothers Network spent more than $889 million. So essentially, when you put those three together, you can think about the Koch Brothers Network as a third political party in America. You know, they have, to a great extent, co-opted the Republican Party. In fact, in, I think, 2015, the Republican Party has started sharing their voter data with the Koch Brothers Network. (laughs) So, I mean, it's like, it's very much a hostile takeover. Right, right. What Sean's not mentioning is that the uh, Koch Networks, uh, the money they spent was all from small donations. (laughs) (laughs) My question is, like, as a third political party, what's their mascot? You know, we got the (laughs) elephant, we got the donkey. What's this this group? Uh, Burning teenagers. (laughs) It's the uh, the more oil, on that later. The oil refinery their father set up in Nazi Germany. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's a dinosaur just slowly decomposing. You know, like the fox decomposing video. Oh yeah, like that, but then turning into oil. Like I think that's really what their mascot should be. Their their mascot should be the polar bear, and it <laughs> slowly gets smaller and smaller every year. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, so Coke Industries is the second largest private corporation in the world. Um, Must have sprung up overnight. In the world. And it is also uh, one of the top 10 polluters in air, water, and climate. What? I believe they dump more than 29 million tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere every year. Um, they are the number one toxic waste producer in the U.S. Um, and also they own Dixie Cups and brawny paper towels and shit. 
Yeah, you know, Dixie Cups. The cups you use when you're either dying or about to die. (laughs) (laughs) Or for jello shots. Jello shots? Yeah, I guess that's true, too. (laughs) I just like the idea of, like... uh, Liberal college students having jello shots while unknowingly funny, funneling dark money against the Obama administration. Um, but, oh, and yes, so and uh, another interesting thing is when we talk about the Koch brothers, people usually think, rightly, David and Charles Koch. They think there's just two brothers. There's actually four brothers, and we'll touch on the others uh, briefly. But David and Charles Koch, are the, uh, they're the big names because uh, Forbes, as of 2018, estimates each of them at net worth of about $61.8 billion. I mean, they are extremely wealthy. And the majority of their net worth comes from each of them owns more of more than 40% of Coke Industries, which is, as we mentioned, the second largest private corporation in the world. I mean, I feel like those other brothers think they're just such like weak idiots. Just like, I've, I, I don't have $40 billion. Like, I'm not. I, like, anytime they use a Dixie cup, they're just like, I fucked up. Yeah, that must suck to like only be worth one billion. I bet they like openly litter, and when people are like, "Hey, you shouldn't litter," and be like, "Trust me, my family is known for this." <laughs> All right. Well, uh, so the primary method in which the uh, Koch brothers exercise their influence over the political process are these Koch brothers semi-annual summits. Uh, they ha- hold them at various resorts and uh, places like that around the country, and they've been holding two of them every year since 2003, which incidentally followed a uh, major uh, settlement, um, a prosecution of the Coke Industries by the Clinton Department of Justice in 1999, uh, which suddenly gave them an interesting uh, desire to be involved in the uh, mainstream political process. But they've been holding these summits twice annually since 2003. Um, it really, after Obama got elected, is when they really took off. Hmm. Um, according to Jane Mayer, the uh, uh, author of the book I wrote, uh, 18, more than 18 billionaires attended their January 2009 post-Obama summit. Um, Sean just said he wrote this book, by the way. I said I wrote it? Yeah, you're like, God, oh, according to this book, I wrote. And it's like, Sean, come on, you can't. <laughs> Dude, I listen to like the tapes, and I'm like, is my brain melting? <laughs> Because, like, last week I said, like... I don't remember writing this. Paul Singer... <laughs> last week I said Paul Singer founded the Fusion do- GPS doc instead of funded it. And I'm just, like... I'm just, like, people are listening to me have a stroke. Uh, Not only are they listening, I listen to it two to three times. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be, like, my mom's going to confront you guys. Like, why didn't you see the warning signs? <laughs> I don't know. They were pretty pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we saw them. We just thought we could make money off of them. Yeah, <laughs> we wanted to see how far it would go. <laughs> Today on Grove Stakers, we take it as far as this shit is ever going. <laughs> God, by the end, I'm going to be like, yeah, I dump uh, 29 million tons of carbon into the atmosphere every year. And uh, I built a uh, f- uh, oil refinery in Nazi Germany. God. Bonus my, episode. Uh, Sean dies on mic. You can hear his death <laughs> rattle. <laughs> the billionaires. Uh, uh, Nas was better than Jay-Z. Like that, uh, that's his final words. Uh, but yes, um, according to this book I wrote, uh, there were 18 billionaires. <laughs> uh, Jane Mayer's book uh, says that there were more than 18 billionaires and many millionaires at the uh, January 2009 post-Obama Koch Brothers Summit. Um, they keep the guest lists and the uh, minutes secret, though occasionally those things have leaked out, which is where our information on these summits comes from. Hmm. But to kind of understand what they do at these Koch Brothers summits, it's kind of, uh, as we mentioned, they are the third political party. So essentially they get all these billionaires and multimillionaires together and they say, hey, pledge X million dollars and we will distribute it throughout our affiliated networks. And they spread this out through all these different conservative action groups and think tanks such as Cato, Heritage Foundation, and then these PACs like Americans for Prosperity, um, you know, like Center to Protect Patients' Rights and whatever other bullshit names they come up with. But it's it's like investment where essentially these millionaires and billionaires have various regulations they want to fight. They have... Um, you know, things they want to stop, things they want to get done. And by donating to the Coke network, they've essentially set up a network to uh, bring 
a political party that just consists of the millionaires and billionaires in this country into action, and that spends almost as much money as the Republican and Democratic parties. Well, if I may uh, boot in, there is an article from Time magazine Mm -hmm. uh, from this year where they talk about the Koch brothers' uh, most recent summit. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were given access, and they say that uh, the summit actually was able to bring together Senator Ted Cruz, oh. uh, the rapper Scarface, oh. and uh, John Carlos, one of the uh, Olympic medal winners who gave the Black Power salute at the podium. Uh, at the podium, and uh, at this podium or in the Olympics? In the Olympics, yeah, I think he was one of the ones in that uh, famous picture. And so, basically, they had uh, they had meetings where they would talk about you know taking these new woke stands like. <laughs> Uh, Charles Koch said uh, we need to be fully committed to a society in which everybody has an opportunity to make a better life for themselves. Wow. That's what we're about. And then um, another person said, let me be frank up front. These elections are going to be brutally tough. They're talking about um, the upcoming midterms. That's from CEO Emily Seidel. So what are we going to do about it? We've never faced a challenge like this. But then it says. Except when we built that oil refinery for Adolf Hitler. (laughs) Uh, that was probably pretty easy if they did it early. <laughs> and, uh, the hard thing was keeping the oil coming to that because they couldn't get Ukraine. Anyway. The uh, hard thing was uh, making sure all of the Jewish personnel were not in the room when they met with the uh, German executives. But here's the thing. So many of the most enthusiastic conversations stemmed from conversations about how the Coke-based network could change communities. Uh, I hate to quote Hillary Clinton, but it takes a village, said Jill Lynch, <laughs> whose family owns an <laughs> Iowa agriculture firm. Uh, these, pro- these programs break against the images of the Koch brothers as political villains. Uh, parentheses, former Senate Democratic leader Harry Reid called them, quote, oligarchs during one of his many speeches against them on the Senate floor. Mm-hmm. And parentheses, and that's part of the point. The Koch Brothers Network has long insisted that it dallies in politics as a mean to push policy. Fuck you, Time Magazine. Consider the stage that brought together Cruz, Scarface, and Carlos (laughs) on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Oh, my God. Each arrived to share his experiences and ideas for fighting what they broadly called inner city violence. Mm. The organizers, the Koch-backed urban specialists, focus on preventing crime, keeping young people from joining gangs, and, and former Bishop Omar Jawar's words, reforming urban culture. Anyways, the bottom of this article, it says in parentheses, disclosure, Time Incorporated, Time's parent company, has agreed to be acquired by Meredith Corp in a deal partially financed by Coke Equity Development, <laughs> a subsidiary of Coke Industries Incorporated. And that's uh, when Scarface says, now as I open up my story with the blaze of your blunts, and you can picture thoughts slowly <laughs> up on phrases I wrote, and I can walk you through the days that i done, I often wish that I could save everyone, but I'm a dreamer. Have you ever seen a... Let's end it right there. Let's <laughs> <laughs> I sit alone in my four-corner room staring at candles manufactured by Coke Industries. <laughs> 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 Instead oh. of division, this event was a powerful example we, of bringing people together. So basically, um, and this is, we're jumping ahead here, but I should give context to that article Andy wrote. Uh, according to, uh, wrote, Jesus Christ, uh, this article that Andy just read into the microphone, uh, uh, according to Jane Mayer's book, basically after the Coke networks lost in 2012, they underwent a, a, an attempt to reshape their image. And part of what they did was uh, try to do the um, criminal justice uh, reform thing mm-hmm. where they got on board with that. Well, it wasn't uh, just an image thing, and we'll get into that later. Right. But uh, just a fun little note, and again, jumping ahead, uh, the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is because uh, John Oliver did a segment on them. They've been called uh, sort of a conservative uh, bill mill where they write uh, thousands of bills for uh, Republican-controlled state legislatures around the country. Um, they are primarily a advocate for the private prison industry. And so ALEC, as it's called, was a big um, supporter of um, mandatory minimums for drug convictions and these kinds of things in the 90s. Uh, all the while, Coke Industries has had a representative sitting on the board of ALEC. Uh, David Co- uh, Charles Coke has given them a half a million dollar loan in 97, mm-hmm. donated a lot of money. So just the point is like... They're such philanthropists. Yes. The point is, like, while they, like, came around to advocate for, like, criminal reform, which is mainly meant to, like, shield white-collar criminals like themselves, they are also, like, big funders of the uh, mass incarceration in the United States and total hypocrites. And Jane Mayer also gives the example, like, in part of their imagery branding, they, like, opened up one of their seminars by quoting Martin Luther King Jr., <laughs> which is always hilarious because they just kind of ignore his support for, you know, nationalized health care right, and a right, job right. guarantee and... 
all that. But anyways, we're jumping ahead. Uh, I would like to start. Um, I have a dream <laughs> that every market will be free. <laughs> Black and white children can play together on an unregulated playground with sharp metal edges. I have a dream that no corporation will be held accountable when its employees die of leukemia. <laughs> Um, but I have a dream of a Dixie cup on every corner from here to Virginia. Um, but so anyway, so I want to start kind of at the beginning, which is... Uh, it's like two miles from the Lincoln Memorial. It's not that far, but it would be good for their uh, bottom line. a lot of Dixie cups. <laughs> be a lot of, yeah. Uh, so, uh, to kind of go back in time a bit, um, so Steve actually was finding that the Cokes have been rich for like six generations. Yeah, at least since the time of, uh, Fred Koch's grandfather. So, right. that, that'd be six right there. Okay, so yeah, you were saying he was like a rich shipbuilder in Europe, or at least a somewhat rich shipbuilder? Before they immigrated from right. the Netherlands. Yeah, so they immigrated from the Netherlands, um, and I believe, uh, it was, what, Charles Koch's great-grandfather that immigrated? And he was uh, a newspaper man. Extra, extra, read all about it! Or he ran a newspaper, that is. Hmm. Um, uh, I believe in Kansas. But it was uh, uh, Charles Koch's father, Fred Koch, who really became uh, fabulously wealthy. That uh, that explains why every news article that comes out of Kansas about the Koch brothers is just one long, filleting, oh yeah. <laughs> like, bootlicker's paradise. Yeah, it turns out when uh, the fourth and fifth richest people in the world are uh, and the <laughs> second largest private corporation in the world is incorporated in your state, it sometimes distorts politics a little <laughs> well, bit the, within the state. These guys are so old money that they're actually like semi-partners of Family and Friends LLC. <laughs> <laughs> like they're, 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 Fred is like a joint founder. Yeah. Your mama is so old money. <laughs> How old money is she? I don't know. I couldn't finish that one. <laughs> Anyways, I want to say that Koch brothers are missing a great opportunity. There's this video from, or this picture from 2009 of a German woman who decided to jump into a polar bear enclosure in the Berlin Zoo, mm -hmm. and they ruthlessly mauled her. Uh, she survived, but the image is oh, it's on this uh, Telegraph article is pretty. Yeah, it's 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 scary, and if they, you know. If they want to fight back against these polar bear loving hippies, yeah, video of the polar bear owning a German lady. I mean, to be fair, it's a uh, a, uh, a zoo polar bear, right? Yeah, they they attack people in the wild in the nineties. They got two. In the nineties, <laughs> yeah, I went to the bear mauling Wikipedia page and I couldn't find anything <laughs> recent. I mean, Andy I bet... Palmer on the research as always. <laughs> It's mostly brown bears, which... Okay, Andy, what the fuck is this all about, huh? The white polar bears never attack anything, but the brown bears are always attacking people? What are you, a Under, Coke brother? Because of, the, because of the Cokes, when you looked for the polar bears, the extent of their range, it just says the 90s. <laughs> What if that's like Andy's like auditioning for like a job as like a Coke PR person where he's like, <laughs> yeah, we're getting rid of the polar bears. Have you seen what they did to this woman? <laughs> it's woke. Like clap emoji, kill, clap emoji, all clap emoji, white, clap emoji bears. I just love it. It's like, well, we have a lot of brown and black bear attacking people, but not a lot of polar. But with CGI, we can paint these black and brown bears white. I think Let's get a million dollar grant from the Cokes to try and like stratify bear attacks by race <laughs> and make it look like bears are primarily killing women and POCs and just be like, it is the duty of us to destroy these bears. Otherwise, yeah, only, only straight white male bros want to keep bears alive. <laughs> this is an issue to no one but the bros. Um... Your mama is so old money, when she spreads her legs, Confederate dollars fall out. <laughs> How about that? It's a little wordy, but I like it. Thanks. Anyways. I have a dream that white and black polar bears can attack people equally. No segregation by attack. <laughs> Um, all right, so uh, Fred Koch, Charles and David Koch's father, is really the guy who um, makes the money uh, for the family. He um, studies chemical engineering, and he comes up with a new method of oil refining. This is, I believe, back in the 1920s. 
uh, in school. He comes up with a new method and um, he tries to like ship it to the major, you know, uh, excuse me, tries to sell it to the major um, oil companies. But they're like very dismissive of him at the time. So he kind of gets embittered. And eventually what he does in 1930, he goes to the Soviet Union under Joseph Stalin and he helps them set up their first oil refineries. So he makes multiple trips to the Soviet Union from 1930 onward and helps them set up their various oil refineries, which later become, you know, the heart of uh, the rapidly industrializing Soviet Union. Um, Which, uh, again, ironic uh, because he becomes an ardent anti-communist later in life. And this was back in the USSR. Yes. Uh, Well, really what he was mad about was that uh, Stalin betrayed the revolution. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> he was a Trotskyite, yeah. and he never forgave Stalin for putting a pickaxe through his head. Um, Trotskyite—that's something an ultra leftist would call a Trotskyist. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so uh, the the fun thing, um, Charles Koch, w- or sorry, Fred Koch, uh, the grandfather, would later tell, or the father would later tell friends that his greatest regret in life was helping the Soviet Union build really? up their industrial capacity. Which is funny, because he also helped Nazi Germany do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so basically, he uh, eventually uh, either gets kicked out. I believe he gets kicked out. Whoa, whoa, but is he saying his biggest regret is helping the Soviets because they eventually helped beat the Nazis, and he's like, I could have made more money had the Nazis won. Like, I could have that... made more. <laughs> like, is that, is that the intent? He who makes one dollar saves the whole world entire. <laughs> I've been too lazy to cut up the Schindler's List drops for Andy, but I promise you they're coming, people. I like how that's our tease on this, uh, this podcast. Listen, Schindler List drops, guys, are coming. they're coming in hot. I am an essential worker. Um, all right. Well, so he uh, eventually, this is how he like first really makes his money is helping the Soviet Union uh, under Stalin set up these oil refineries. But by 1935, he's persona non grata with the Soviet Union. There have been various purges and these kinds of things. So he moves from the Soviet Union to, in 1935, he goes into a joint venture with Nazi Germany, Fred Koch does. Um, He helps Nazi Germany set up an oil refinery in Hamburg in uh, 1935, and uh, Jane Mayer describes this very well in her book. Um, Basically, it was in a joint venture with an American Nazi sympathizer named William Rhodes Davis, uh, and William Rhodes Davis basically, like, he was an ardent Nazi who lobbied like a various Nazi officials to let him set up this oil refinery. Uh, and apparently like he met with one of them and opened with a Heil Hitler salute oh, to try wow. and like impress the guy for uh, how much he um, uh, was a you know, radical Nazi. And eventually this, this uh, American William Rhodes Davis actually has a, a personal meeting with Hitler uh, because he's like been trying to convince Hitler's advisors to go along with this oil refinery. Mm-hmm. And so finally he gets a face-to-face with Hitler and pitches him, and Hitler's like, hell yeah, let's do this. So Hitler approves it, and then it get, cuts through all the layers of bureaucracy. And then William Rhodes Davis goes... Say what you will, but they got things done. <laughs> <laughs> William Rhodes Davis goes to his partner, Fred Koch, and they set up the uh, Hamburg oil refinery, um, which was a... Uh, Again, so basically, as we mentioned, Fred Koch came up with this new method of refining oil. So they take raw crude and they run it through this oil refinery and then they have functional gasoline, functional oil. And this, of course, this oil refinery in Hamburg was a big part of the Nazi war machine and, you know, provided the fuel that German tanks used when they were running through France in 1940. Um, But just kind of like uh, fun things about this, Uh, the Hamburg oil refinery that Fred Koch set up was destroyed by American bombers in 1944. Uh, The Allies had been bombing it relentlessly since 1940, and more than 42,000 German civilians were killed in Hamburg over the course of bombing this oil refinery. (laughs) And, uh, you know, not There there was also the firestorm (laughs) that incinerated people (laughs) and melted them into asphalt. This wasn't really a fun fact at all. (laughs) (laughs) Um, well, the fun fact is that uh, Charles Koch uh, publishes a book called Secrets to Success. Uh, what uh, if he took credit for making the asphalt that people in Hamburg got melted into during the firebombing? 
<laughs> oh, excuse me. Charles Koch uh, d- published a book called The Science of Success. Oh, thank uh, God. In which he the did- skull science of success. <laughs> <laughs> the racial science of success. <laughs> the eugenics of success. What's white is what's right. <laughs> He pub- Charles Koch publishes a book called so- The Science of Success, where he briefly mentions that his father worked for the Soviet Union, but for some reason does not mention that his father worked for Nazi Germany <laughs> and visited the country multiple times. Um, though the cover of his book is the Work Will Set You Free sign at Auschwitz. <laughs> deep cut. Um, but yes, so... Not really a deep cut. That's pretty known, I think. <laughs> That gives a lot of context to the interview he did with Mike Rowe about the importance of hard work. <laughs> yeah. Um, Not all jobs are dirty. <laughs> Some of them you feel clean on the inside, even though the world <laughs> becomes dirtier. But so Fred Koch, uh, by 35, he's traveling, uh, f- uh, I think, like at least a couple times annually. I don't know the exact number of trips, but he makes a lot of trips to Nazi Germany in order to oversee this refinery. Though as the war, step- as the war breaks out, of course, he steps away. But interesting fact. Um, from the Jane Mayer book, is that um, the nurse that Fred Koch hires to raise um, Frederick Koch is the oldest child, and Charles Koch is the second oldest. The nurse that uh, he hires to raise them is a literal Nazi. Oh, really? In the sense that um, she... uh, Well, first, she puts them on uh, a very strict disciplinary regime Mm -hmm. where, like, uh, Frederick Koch... Uh, the son and uh, Charles Koch would both have to like defecate every morning and she would like watch them and make them defecate and then hit them if they didn't defecate. And Jane Mayer gets a little um, Freudian and kind of speculates the setup. (laughs) Charles Koch's later, uh, you know, absolute hate for all forms of like government authority and regulators and his desire to be in complete control of everything. Yeah, that makes sense. If someone told me to shit as a kid and they got mad if I didn't, I... I probably would hate everyone, too. Is this where the making people watch porn thing came from? <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that later. Um, but so uh, this nurse uh, was, when I say she was a literal Nazi, she was a German lady who would speak German to them. And she left the family in 1940 because she was so euphoric that Hitler had invaded France that she had to fly back to Germany and be <laughs> with the Nazi regime. <laughs> so Charles Koch was raised by two literal Nazis. I like how th- there's a two-week conversation. It's like, hey, listen, I like working for you guys. You're, you're <laughs> I mean, I got to roll back. Just, like, I mean, Have you seen the newsreel? <laughs> you know, we need, I need to be there for that shit. Listen, I mean, America's fun and all, but... Not enough swastikas, you know? I just really want to be around my people, you know? Look, they gave me this new job at Dachau Concentration Camp. <laughs> I need more Lebensbrom. <laughs> I need more Lebensbrom. <laughs> you know what I understand? I hate the commies, too. So they bilked me out of the contract. I think he actually did accuse the Soviet Union of, like, screwing him over on financial stuff. Again, <laughs> they made him a multimillionaire. The Soviet Union under Stalin did. Um, so once the, 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 the American army got into the war, they uh, he stopped going back. But do you think that his ties to uh, Nazi Germany as well as other businessmen is part of the reason why America didn't go into the war as quickly as they did? Could that be a possible connection? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, well, I mean, like, uh, this is kind of a separate issue. I would argue um, U.S. public opinion was wildly against intervening in the war because Mm. of the experience of the First World War. Mm. So Franklin Roosevelt himself was kind of in favor of intervention but had to kind of, like, gently steer the American public into it. And then, like, in 1940, he ran for re-election saying we wouldn't get involved in the war. And then, of course, we did after Pearl Harbor. And so, like, certainly the American business community had big ties to Hitler. You know, we'll talk about IBM on (laughs) their role in uh, computer technology for um, cataloging things. Uh, More like 5 (laughs) a.m. Yeah, now we're not going to get hired to replace Nick Mullen. Uh, What are you going to do? For those who don't listen, uh, so uh, to Comtown, uh, Nick Mullen, the host of Comtown, a very funny comedian, he, he 
tweeted about IBM's role in the Holocaust and then later got a commercial with IBM. And then the Comptown fans made IBM aware of his previous <laughs> tweets <laughs> and cost him more than $50,000. Wow. Um, but so anyway, let's have him on for the IBM episode. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he'll be thrilled to talk about it. Yeah, you know that time you could have made like almost six figures for an hour's worth of work, <laughs> but a bunch of assholes on the internet thought it would be funny to ruin that for you. I mean, it would have been uh, five figures just with taxes in general. So yeah. let's not talk about. It. Yeah, maybe, it and gets... that's what the Koch brothers are standing up that's against. That's right. That's right. But anyways, it was a separate conversation. But yes, American industrialists were a big part of Hitler's rise to power and his rearmament. You know, as we said, the, the Nazi Germany was entirely committed to government spending for the purposes of rearmament. And this oil refinery that, again, made Fred Koch fabulously rich was part of the Nazi German rearmament and absolutely provided fuel for the German tanks, German planes, everything. Um, so, yeah. And... Uh, if you thought Fred Koch maybe moderated his views in later years, I have a pleasant surprise for you. Uh, Fred Koch, of course, um, was one of the 11 original members of the John Birch Society, which was founded in 1958. The John Birch Society uh, is, interestingly enough, uh, set up by a guy named Robert Welsh Jr., who um, was a founding member of the company that made Thin Mints, Basically, they had a candy company, and then he used his fortune to pursue radical right-wing causes. And so the John Birch Society, for, for those not familiar with it, um, they're named after, I believe, a CIA agent named John Birch who was killed in the Korean War. And they say this was the first American killed by communism. What? Yeah. So they're a radical anti-communist organization. And uh, just to give you some perspective on how radical they are, uh, they can do 360s on the skateboard. <laughs> and, uh, radical, dude. They, uh, they also believe that President Eisenhower was a communist. Oh, really? Like, they believe the Republican president who kept the New Deal in place uh, and, you know, overthrew the um, democratically elected president of Iran uh, was, like, a communist sympathizer because he wasn't hard right enough for them. Um and so Fred Koch becomes one of the original uh, 11 members of the John Birch Society. He's a big funder of it. And uh, he self-publishes a pamphlet in 1960 called A Businessman Looks at Communism. And uh, Fred Koch, uh, again, Charles and David Koch's father, believed that in this pamphlet he says that uh, communists are mobilizing blacks to take over America. And, of course, this is, you know, uh, shortly after Brown v. Board of Education, which took place in Kansas where they lived, uh, or the original case came from a Kansas school district. So desegregation was a big issue at right. the time in the 50s. And uh, many members of the John Birch Society, including Fred Koch, believed that desegregation was a communist plot. And if I can just quote from what uh, Fred Koch wrote in this pub in this pamphlet, A Businessman Looks at Communism, he says, quote, The colored man looms large in the communist plot to take over America. And he also says that welfare is a secret plot to lure blacks to cities where they will launch a, quote, vicious race war. Oh. So, uh, you know... Uh, a man who uh, his biggest regret in life is funding the Soviet <laughs> Union, and uh, vicious race war in the cities. Eh, that's that's the fucking gambit here. That's what they're saying. Mm -hmm. Man, yeah. It turns out when you uh, don't let people starve to death, it's a uh, plot to formulate a vicious race war. I'm reading an article of theirs on uh, New World Order approaching fast. Oh, is this a modern uh, John Birch Society? Yeah, this is on their website. And one of the here, here's a sentence from it. Democracy, remember, has been described as two wolves and a sheep voting on what's for dinner. <laughs> yeah, the John Birch Society is still around today. And so actually, uh, Charles Koch, who uh, we'll get to shortly, um, but Charles Koch learned a lot from the John Birch Society when he set up his network. Um, his father uh, brought him to these John Birch Society meetings and, you know, tried to, like, impart the influence on him. And so uh, Charles Koch, again, according to Jane Mayer's book, basically what he learned from the John Birch Society was first secrecy was paramount because mm -hmm. the John Birch Society, again, as a radical anti-communist group that thought the U.S. government was infiltrated by communists and these sorts of things. 
uh, and segregation was a communist plot, etc. They knew that it was important to protect their members' identities and, you know, not allow public disclosure wow. of who funds them, uh, who's involved. And so Charles Koch uh, learned from that when he set up his network. But the other big thing he learned was the John Birch Society was... I don't know the current membership structure, but it was a nonprofit with private stockholders and a board of directors, which is the um, way that Robert Welsh Jr., the candy, uh, <laughs> the candy fanatic, was able to essentially entirely control the John Birch Society, where you can set up these uh, uh, private uh, quote-unquote nonprofits that you still exercise absolute control over and Charles would actually emulate that structure exactly when he set up the liber libertarian think tank the Cato Institute in 1974 so basically he learned those kinds of lessons from the John Birch Society though he himself uh, again according to Jane Mayer was kind of turned off by some of the conspiratorial thinking. Yeah, well, you know, one of the first campaigns of the John Birch Society was to get the U.S. out of the United Nations. <laughs> the global power elites view the U.N. as their main vehicle for establishing step-by-step -step a socialistic global government controlled by themselves. Mm -hmm. Now more than ever, we need to get, the U get out of the U.N. and remove the U.N. from the United States. Mm. Uh, we would like to preemptively thank the John Birch Society for their help in our research for the Rothschilds episode. <laughs> But yes, yeah, so uh, the John Birch Society, uh, conspiratorial, but uh, a big influence on Charles Koch's thinking. And Charles Koch um, was kind of, he becomes essentially the alpha of the four brothers. Nice. Um, yeah, I mean, like, as Jane Mayer describes it, when they're growing up, Charles is kind of like the one in charge. Um, though Frederick, so just to kind of go through the four brothers, because as we mentioned, there are four brothers. So uh, Frederick Koch is the oldest, Charles Koch is the second oldest, and then David and Bill Koch are twins, and they're the youngest. Um, uh, it, here's, it, here's I, I, I found uh, probably the best way to describe them. Uh, Charles is Groucho. <laughs> he's uh, he's uh, considered the funny one, uh -huh. uh, always with the wisecracks. Uh, David's Chico, the uh, sleazy urbanite and the lovable con man. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Frederick is Zeppo. He left the family business, and no one really cares about him. <laughs> and uh, Bill is Harpo, who because uh, he mostly communicates using horns and whistles. <laughs> so which one stood up to the Nazi governess the most? <laughs> It would be would it be Charles Groucho. He was kind of the uh, Groucho Coke. We we all remember that uh, wacky Marx Brothers movie where they're like helping put fuel in the Panzer tanks and it keeps coming out of the other side, and, like yes. spouting out of the top. It's, it's, movie, lots of slapstick. Yeah. The movie's called Jew Soup. <laughs> uh, but so Ukrainian crackers. <laughs> a great band name by the way <laughs> if you need a band name ukrainian crackers is i'm i'm looking for that a night at triplinka <laughs> <laughs> anyway if you want to um here's charles explaining their uh political philosophy uh charles coke i don't know what they have to say it makes no difference anyway whatever it is i'm against it <laughs> no matter what it is or who commenced it i'm against it that's libertarianism that's for, that's from duck soup right I believe, uh, or horse feathers. Okay. Anyways, R.I.P. Groucho. Um, anyways, so the uh, uh, John Birch Society. And here's David Koch. Mm -hmm. Whatever it is, I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the John Birch Society is, is uh, very influential on Charles Koch. And so, uh, as we mentioned, Charles Koch is the second oldest, but he becomes the alpha, essentially. Jane Mayer describes him as, like, bullying the other brothers and really influencing their thinking and these kinds of things. Um, bullying being telling them when to poop in the morning and then hitting them <laughs> if they don't. Well, he, he learned it from elsewhere. Yeah, not quite that. But uh, so basically what happens is uh, Charles Koch goes to MIT. He gets a BS in general engineering in 57, an MS in nuclear engineering in 1958, a second MS in chemical engineering, 1960. And uh, I'm sure it did not hurt that his father was on the board of trustees at oh. MIT. Um, <laughs> so, you know, merit-based. Then he got uh, an MFA from the new school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so basically, he's really good at analyzing the power of dance. <laughs> um, I want to talk a bit about Charles Koch's kind of political awakening, as it were. Uh, what happens is uh, there's whatever it is, 
I'm against it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a, uh, uh, a free market uh, organization set up in 1957 called the Freedom School. Um, and this is uh, the found- What a great name, the Freedom School. Right. Uh, How the- could you be against that? <laughs> it's the Freedom School. Um, and again, I owe this research to Jane Mayer, but uh, she says the founder of this uh, was a guy who in the 1940s set up a self-actualization movement called the Mighty I Am that was basically like a cult and it whipped audiences into a frenzy by having them chant annihilate them in response to the names Franklin Roosevelt and Eleanor Roosevelt. What? <laughs> so basically the guy the speaker would get up and be like Franklin Roosevelt and then they would all be like annihilate them. <laughs> and uh you know so this gives you kind of an idea of their views on the new deal and uh these kinds of things. Uh but the founder of this sets up a uh, an organization called the Freedom School in 1957 and uh I believe in the early 1960s Charles Koch attends this and uh uh, he convinces his other three brothers into also attending it. Um, uh, David Koch kind of like follows Charles's lead, and then Bill Koch does as well, but Frederick Koch uh, doesn't really get into it. He thinks the Freedom School is kind of a cult. And uh, if you were wondering why, there were two faculty members at the Freedom School, one of whom was a Holocaust denier. Uh, a group of teachers in 1959 visited the freedom school and described it as proposing reducing the bill of rights to one right quote the right to own property again credit <laughs> a credit to jane mayer for this she also said uh, that the uh freedom school preached that the civil war should not have been fought the south should have been allowed to secede because human beings should be allowed to sell themselves into slavery if they want to that sounds like a choice wow so basically uh Oh, and the Freedom School also at this point in time had no black students, and the founder said it's because, quote, some of our uh, students and teachers are segregationists. Oh, my God. <laughs> and uh, this is uh, Charles Koch, as late as, I believe, 1999, said that this organization was profoundly influential on his thinking, though he and David later distanced themselves from the founder for obvious reasons. I wonder why. I wonder yeah. why that happened. But, um... Uh, because in the Freedom School in the 60s, that is when Charles Koch first read uh, Frederick Hayek and Lud- Ludwig von Mises, the uh, conservative economists that are basically like, um, you know, uh, the free market should decide everything. All government control is like slavery and these kinds of things. That's a uh, so, Nobel Prize winner, Frederick Hayek, right? <laughs> <laughs> though uh, Hayek did actually say, though it's like not mentioned as much, he actually did believe the poor should have a minimum standard of living. But again, this part always gets glossed over, much like kind of the way conservatives talk about Adam Smith, where they ignore all the inconvenient points that he made and focus entirely on free markets decide everything correctly. Oh, the no. invisible hand that he talked a lot about in one sentence. <laughs> uh, basically, Charles Koch becomes a big funder of the Freedom School, and what what uh, really launches Charles Koch's so-called philanthropic career is that after he graduates, his father wants him to come back and take over Koch Industries. Um, uh, Fred Koch does, so he does come back to Kansas. Charles Koch does, and he sends himself into a period of deep study. Like, I think he, like, reads tons of books in, like, the 60s and, again, attends the Freedom School, and this is where he finds these conservative economists. And he then, read, quote, like a demon, okay. according to David Koch. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's no nice way to talk about von Mises. <laughs> like a demon, the extended title, Touch for the Very First Time. <laughs> uh, all right, so he reads uh, like a demon, and... Um, he he goes into it's a not de- a book. It's how much he read. <laughs> <laughs> he goes into a deep period of study, and uh, in 1967, their father, the uh, avowed Nazi and John Birch Society member, whose greatest regret was funding the Soviet Union, R.I.P. He dies in 1967. Um, but before that, uh, Charles proposed to apparently buy two trucking companies, and his father before he went on a safari in africa apparently uh was preoccupied with how much money he needed to save to pay his federal death taxes right so he told charles to buy only one but charles bought both and fred was furious he met him at the airport and he would barely talk to him 
the only thing he'd say was, quote, son, I've been trying to save enough money to pay my death taxes, and you're going out and just wasting it. <laughs> it's a great father-son dynamic right there. This is the worst my thing. My heart since... is break. <laughs> Fred Koch said, this is the worst thing since the German army stopped at Moscow. <laughs> <laughs> My fuel wasn't enough to get them there. Goddamn <laughs> Russian winner. Um, but so interesting topic on the uh, death taxes. So basically, uh, uh, and again, credit to Jane Mayer. She did the research for this episode, at least my research. Uh, she quotes the Koch family as setting up what is called a charitable trust foundation. And this is a way of shielding Fred Koch's inheritance from the um, in, uh, death tax. Uh, so basically, uh, when, in 1967, when Charles uh, Coke, uh, sorry, when Fred Coke dies, uh, Coke Industries is making about 177 million dollars annual revenue, mm-hmm. and that's uh, in uh, 1967 dollars. Um, David Coke later said that his father gave him a 300 million dollar inheritance. So again, he and he split his inheritance equally among his four sons. They would later fight for it and have legal battles, which we'll get into later. But um, the point here is they set up this charitable trust, and because of the way tax... I think Charles and David had this discussion about uh, the contract. Well, I don't know. It's all right. That, that's in every contract. That's, that's what they call a sanity clause. <laughs> you can't fool me. There ain't no sanity clause. <laughs> R.I.P. Um, okay, so they set up what was called a charitable trust uh, for the Koch Foundation. Now, basically, the way tax law was structured is that they can pass on the entire inheritance, uh, shield it from taxation, as long as the trust um, donates the interest that it occurs to nonprofit organizations for 20 years. And this is what really sets off Charles and later David Koch on their quote-unquote philanthropy because they have this charitable trust where they have to uh, donate – all of the um, interest from it to charitable organizations in order to shield their inheritance from taxation. So uh, Charles Koch becomes a founder, uh, sorry, becomes a funder of the previously mentioned Freedom School. And he is able to count this as charitable giving because this radical segregationist organization is an educational school. So, and then he later repeats the model with the Cato Institute, founded in 1974. But the point is, because they were able to uh, shield their father's money from taxation through a charitable trust, they later realized they could weaponize philanthropy into basically creating the entire libertarian movement. Uh, And this was around the time that uh, Charles got engaged to Liz, right? uh, Yes, I believe so. I think that was something... uh... Will you marry me? Did he leave you any money? Answer the second question first. (laughs) All right. Well, so anyways, um, Charles Koch... uh, um, he, he's a big funder of the Freedom School, and uh, at this point, he's kind of into the radical libertarian philosophy. But this really picks up in the 1970s with the f- uh, founding of the EPA under President Nixon, and Coke Industries starts getting involved in some legal and regulatory battles. And uh, What? The uh, EPA has a problem with the Coke Industries? <laughs> yeah, believe it or not, it is a uh, major producer of... Uh, I think the number one producer of toxic waste in the country. I oh mentioned that up top. Yeah, yeah. Well, did you yeah. know that the EPA is full of unelected bureaucrats who are enforcing their will on uh, these innocent individuals? Uh, all these people, like Coke Industries. What? Um, actually, we should. Uh, uh, before I jump ahead here, I do want to talk a bit about Frederick Coke um, because there is a story in the uh, book uh, that I read as research. Uh, Guys, Sean read a book. 460 pages. He had notes. <laughs> There's a story in there. So basically, um, the oldest brother, uh, Freddy or Frederick Koch. Zeppo. Uh, he's uh, rumored to be gay, though oh. he personally denies it. Um, as you can imagine... So he's very sad? Their father... <laughs> yes. He's like, no, I'm horribly depressed. <laughs> I am not gay. Uh so you took the bait. <laughs> the uh, uh, the story in Jane Mayer's book is essentially this: um, before their father dies, uh, um, Charles Coke comes up with a plot to try and steal Frederick's share of the company. What he does is, um, I believe Charles and one of his friends visit um, Frederick's apartment. I think in the West Village at the time. This is in the 1960s. 
and find compromising evidence that supposedly shows that he is gay. And then they invite him into a board meeting of their division of Coke Industries without telling him what's up. And then once they're gathered there, uh, Charles leads the other two brothers in confronting Frederick about his homosexuality and saying that he will tell their father if he doesn't sell his shares in the company to them. What? And Frederick storms out of the meeting, and he later says, he, uh, Frederick later tells a biographer that this blackmail attempt didn't work because he is not gay. Um, but, interestingly enough, while all of his brothers got engineering degrees, Freddie attended Harvard and studied playwriting at the Yale School of Drama. Oh, well. So, not to stereotype, but who knows. But also, in their unguarded moments, the uh, other Koch brothers will admit that Frederick was the funniest. <laughs> <laughs> Frederick was a big fixture at the Algonquin Round Table <laughs> in the 1920s. Um, but yes, so, uh, and we should mention, uh, Frederick is the only brother, I believe, who is not a billionaire. He is still a multimillionaire. But what happens... Aww. What happens yeah. is um, in 1983, after you know protracted fights about this and that direction of the co- of the company, David and Char- uh, David Coke follows Charles's lead, the Alpha brother, and they go off in one direction. And what happens is Frederick and Bill Coke sell their stock in the company. Again, their father divided it equally between the four of them. Uh, they sell their stock to uh, David and Charles Coke in 1983 for about 800 million dollars. Uh, Bill Koch and Frederick Koch would later sue the other brothers, saying that they had undervalued the company and, you know, hid material information from them and these kinds of things. Because, again, you know, the other two Koch brothers are now worth $60 billion each because it is a hugely profitable company, Um, partly because... uh, That conversation went something like this. Uh, You want I should steal? Oh, no, no. It's not stealing. Well, then I couldn't do it. Uh, but yeah, but Frederick's gay. I mean, he would have spent money on all this gay stuff. I mean, like, you know, who wants to hang out with a dude that's gay? You yeah, know who, what wants I mean? to, who wants to hang out with a dude who buys art not to launder money? With <laughs> <him>? <laughs> um, but so, anyways, uh, the point is, uh, Bill Koch uh, w- later goes on to become the founder and president of Oxbow Energy Group, which is another kind of. Uh, Energy company, which so is... energy drink? Yeah. It's uh, not as big as Coke Industries, but Bill Coke, uh, Forbes does put him at $1.8 billion net worth as of uh, 2018. So uh, Bill Coke is a billionaire, but not nearly to the extent of the other Cokes, whereas Frederick Coke uh, merely settles to having being worth hundreds of millions of dollars. It goes to say, you know, if you suck dick, you're going to be paid less eventually. Mm-hmm. Uh, fun story about Bill Coke. He would uh, spend $65 million to win the America's Cup in yachting in 1992 uh, because, you know, skill sport. Yeah. Well, and he, he won by pulling a fish out of his pants and throwing it at his competitor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is funny to me. Like, uh, as a avid Magic the Gathering player, people sometimes complain that it's a pay-to-win game, but it's like, well, it's not quite yachting. <laughs> <laughs> Where you can just spend $65 million to win the highest honor in yachting. If you spent $65 million for on Magic, could you be the best Magic player in the world? Yeah, probably. I could certainly be the most annoying. <laughs> <laughs> I could have the best Instagram presence. It would just be me, like, shredding Black Lotus. <laughs> I would love if there was a Coke presence in uh, Magic the Gathering tournament. One of the brothers was a pe- avid... Apparently, Martin Shkreli was, like, in part of his publicity stunt, like, threatening to, like, buy up, like, Black Lotuses and other, like, super rare magic cards just to, like, piss off the community. And, uh, you know, that's really what got him 12 years in prison. (laughs) You can't fuck with magic players. You know, we have... I don't want to talk out of school, but a lot of federal judges come to the tournaments. (laughs) Really? (laughs) No, (laughs) not to the best of my knowledge. All right. So I found um, a quote from... uh, Bill Coe after the uh, yacht race. Okay, yeah, play it. <laughs> so I guess really what's happening here is uh, after Charles Koch is influenced by the Freedom School and um, the John Birch Society, and again, he gets his brothers to attend, David Koch in particular really 
uh, becomes an acolyte of this uh, philosophy as ra- as well. But he is, by the 70s, a dyed-in-the-wool libertarian, radical libertarian in every sense of the word. He believes the only thing the government should do is protect property rights. And so what happens is... Whatever um, it is, I don't like it. Uh, what happens in the 70s and then 80s, the Koch brothers essentially create the modern libertarian movement in the sense that David Koch in 1980 runs for vice president on the libertarian ticket. Um, and they do that in order to skirt campaign finance laws where David Koch can just spend infinite amount of money on the libertarian party because he's an actual candidate instead of an outside donor right. at this oh. point. Um <laughs> But so what we uh, really kind of want... And they won by a landslide, right? Yes. (laughs) The smartest investment money can buy. But so in 1974, um, Charles Koch sets up the Cato Institute uh, with uh, Murray Rothbard, the uh, conservative economist who I believe believes there should be a functioning market for for children in a perfect libertarian society. (laughs) Um, uh, So in 1974, Charles Koch, uh, Ed Crane, who we'll talk about uh, next week, and Murray Rothbard set up the Cato Institute. The Cato Institute is a nonprofit with private stockholders controlled entirely by Charles Koch and um, uh, a board of directors controlled by Charles Koch. And uh, Ed Crane is the first president of the libertarian Cato think tank. But uh, according to one insider that Jane Mayer quotes, he would always call Wichita, Wichita, Kansas, and run things by Charles first. Hmm. So Charles Koch uh, funds this think tank and essentially uses it as an ideological production line where uh, uh, Mayor, Jane Mayer talks about this where Charles Koch follows the Frederick Hayek model of production where essentially they use their money to produce think tanks that create ideas and then um, scholars that go out and advocate for those ideas and then eventually politicians and media people to implement those ideas. You know, those are a lot of words for just propaganda. Yes. (laughs) Like, that's a lot of words for, oh, we're going to make some shit up and people are going to talk about it. Like, that's crazy. Right. Well, Yogi, do you have a Nobel Prize? (laughs) I guess not. Actually, I have an audio clip from um, uh, Charles. It's something he said to David while he was giving a speech, uh, while he was running for president, vice president. Talk fast. I see a man in the crowd with a rope. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So here's the quote from Murray Rothbard. Um, He says in The Ethics of Liberty that a parent should not have legal obligation to feed, clothe, or educate his children since such obligations would entail positive acts coerced (laughs) upon the parents (laughs) and depriving the parent of his rights. So essentially he believed in abortion at 16 years old. the parent, therefore, may murder or mutilate his child, and the law properly outlaws a parent from doing so, but the parent should have the legal right to... Oh, the parent may not murder or mutilate his child, but the parent should have the legal right to not feed the child, i.e. allow it to die. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, he continues, Murray Rothbard continues, if a parent may own his child... Uh, then he may also transfer the ownership to someone else. What? He may give the child out for adoption, or he may, he may sell the rights to the child in a voluntary contract. <laughs> in short, we must face the fact that a, per, a purely free society will have a f- flourishing free market in children. <laughs> He does acknowledge, superficially, this sounds monstrous and inhumane, but closer <laughs> thought... Superficially. But closer, in light. <laughs> but closer thought will reveal the superior humanism of such a market. Oh uh, that is why uh, Estonia has adopted Murray Rothbard as its <laughs> national mascot because of their underground child sex slavery market <laughs> that is actually the most humane and free thing possible um but the freest market but yes economist murray rothbard who you just heard from was a co-founder of the cato institute um along with ed crane and charles Koch. and uh murray rothbard was later forced out by charles Koch, as we mentioned charles controls everything about the cato institute and he later had disparaging things to say about charles Koch, essentially that he ran cato institute like a dictatorship um so yeah and uh i guess we'll kind of leave it was not a free market of ideas (laughs) Turns out it wasn't. <laughs> no, it is a free market because the idea with the most money rises to the top. Oh, yeah. 
But uh, we're, we're kind of leaving it here. So next week, if you'll uh, turn back in, uh, we'll give you a bit of a preview of what we're going to be talking about. Uh, they run... Um, the next Co- week on Grubstakers. Next week on Grubstakers. The Koch brothers run for president on the Libertarian ticket in 1980. The David Koch runs for vice president. Uh, they fund the Libertarian Party, and they pour money into Libertarian causes. But... After the Clinton administration investigates them, they become heavy funders of the Republican Party, uh, and that later is kicked into high gear by Citizens United, where they become a third political party unto themselves. So we'll talk all about their interactions with Obama, their influence on George W. Bush, and, uh, you know, the people that they've killed, including employees and uh, residents of small towns where they have dumped horrific benzene pollution. Uh, so all that and more coming up next week on part two of the Koch Brothers. And with that, I'm Yogi Pollywall. I'm Andy Palmer. He's Sean McCarthy. Steve Jeffries. Toodles. Bye. Thanks for listening.